the United Nations Audiovisual Lectures of International Law gives me the honor to contribute a lecture on the present and the future role of the International Court of Justice in the peaceful settlement of international disputes. Nearly past two decades have undoubtedly been years of hard work for the International Court of Justice. Above all, however, it has been a very gratifying period for the court. The court has seen the trust placed in it by states increase steadily over the last 30 years, and the past decade also have seen an exceptional number of new cases being submitted to the court. Whereas in the 1970s, the court had very few cases on its general list, and from 1990 to 1997, it had between 9 and 13 cases. In the following years, the number of cases before the court has further increased. However, in some cases, there are cases within cases, requests, for instance, requests for provisional measures, preliminary objections on jurisdiction and admissibility, and counterclaims. Never before in the history of the international community have states so clearly affirmed their preference for achieving the peaceful settlements of their disputes on the basis of international law. Further, in addition to the increase in its caseload, the court has been called upon to decide some of the most challenging cases from the perspective of international politics that it has ever faced. However, despite increased trust on the courts by states, it seems to me that the court's function is still too often misunderstood outside the compound of the court in the peace palace of the Hague, the Netherlands. It is with this in mind that I have chosen the aforementioned topic for today's lecture. I shall begin by outlining some of the features that distinguish the International Court of Justice from other international courts and tribunals before moving on to consider the ways in which these features have enabled it to make a unique contribution to the peaceful resolution of disputes. In so doing, I hope to clarify the true role of the court and perhaps to shed a new light on its valuable function in furthering international peace and security, focusing particularly on some events which, in my view, have underlined the efficacy and the importance of the court in this domain. So, what is, is it that distinguishes the International Court of Justice from other international tribunals? First, the court is one of the six principal organs of the United Nations, along with inter alia, the General Assembly Security Council, as stated in Article 7 of the Charter. As a principal organ of the United Nations, the International Court of Justice has to participate at the highest level in the achievement of the organization's purposes, acting in parallel with other principal organs, which all operate on the strictly 
equal footing, and each paving due deference to the autonomy of the others. The court's position in this regard must be contrasted with other international tribunals and courts, which either do not possess equivalent status within the United Nations or are not part of the United Nations. Taken as examples, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and its counterpart for Rwanda, they are subsidiary organs of the Security Council. I do not need to remind you that the maintenance of international peace and security is the primary purpose of the United Nations, set out in paragraph 1 of Article 1 of the Charter. To facilitate the attainment of this goal, Article 2 stipulates a number of guiding principles. One of these requires member states to seek the peaceful settlement of their disputes in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered. The list of appropriate methods by which to pursue the peaceful settlement disputes as provided in Article 33, Paragraph 1 of the Charter, specifically mentions judicial settlement. To this end, Article 92 clarifies the International Court of Justice is not only a principal organ of the UN, it is also the principal judicial organ of the organization to which legal disputes should, as a general rule, be referred pursuant to Article 36, Paragraph 3 of the Charter. The effect of these provisions is to confirm upon the court a role in the maintenance of international peace. In order to accomplish its task of resolving international disputes, the court is empowered to exercise its jurisdiction by way of two distinct procedures. The first of these is the procedure in contentious proceedings, which constitutes the core workload of the court. The second is the system of advisory opinions. Although not strictly aimed at a disputed settlement, advisory opinions can, by answering legal questions, have significant pacifying effect, whether or not there is a concurrent dispute between states. The court, and this would be a second distinguishing feature when comparing it to other international courts and tribunals, has the advantage that its statute provides for a worldwide judicial system open not only to all members of the United Nations, but also to non-members of the UN under certain conditions laid down by the Security Council. The court's global reference, uh, relevance is also reflected in its composition. Its 15 members are each elected for a nine-year term and eligible for re-election by the General UN General Assembly and the Security Council. In accordance with Article 9 of the court's statute, the election must be carried out so as to ensure within the court as a whole, the representation of the main forms of civilization and of principal legal system of the world. In practice, 
since the early 1960s, Article 9 of the statute is reflected in the form of regional distribution seats of seats in the court parallel to that in the Security Council, which is also composed of 15 members, that is, five seats for Western European and others group, three seats for Asian group, three seats for African group, two seats for Eastern European group, and two seats for South American and Caribbean group. Five seats for permanent members are included in this regional distribution of 15 seats in the Security Council. A third distinguishing feature of the court relates to the breadth of its jurisdiction. In contrast to other international courts and tribunals, which usually have limited jurisdiction over subject matter, territory, and time, the International Court of Justice possesses general international jurisdiction, which enables the court to deal with any issue relating to international law. Other standing courts and tribunals, including Law of the Sea Tribunal, the appellate body of the World Trade Organization, and U.S. Iran Claims Tribunal, are only presented with cases arising within the context of treaty regime within which they exist. This limited context constrains their ability to serve as the definitive forum for matters of general international law. And that role is, as a matter of fact, reserved to the International Court of Justice, which can take into account developments in international law across the entire spectrum of international relations. The work of the court is sometimes compared to that of international arbitral tribunals. Clearly, both judicial settlements and arbitration have their advantages, depending on the degree of politicization, specialization, formality, and publicity sought by states in the resolution of particular disputes. However, in the case of disputes that could lead to a threat to peace, certain factors undoubtedly favor the court. The court is a permanent and a pre-constituted institution. Consequently, the number and election of judges, the law to be applied, the procedure to be followed, and the competence of the court regarding both preliminary questions and of merits are all carefully regulated in the court statute. The existence of the court as a permanent institution has an effect that the probability of a settlement of the dispute by legal techniques may take a definite shape at an earlier stage than would be possible if the court did not exist. Professor Shapti Rosin has observed that the permanency of the court, which transforms into constants most of the variables inherent in international arbitration makes the court the most refined instrument now existing for the depoliticization of the process of Pacific settlement and its fulfillment through the application of legal techniques.
The court has on occasion been criticized for its lengthy procedures, taking years for delivery of a judgment from the date of institutional proceedings in a case. It is a criticism which, in my view, is quite unjustified. While it may be true that delays in proceedings do arise, such delays are mostly the result of procedural steps taken by the parties for one reason or another. When states litigate against each other, they do not want to be constrained by procedures that restrict their ability to present their cases as fully and completely as they wish. And as a matter of principle, sovereign states that bring major disputes before the court cannot be prevented from using all procedural options open to them. However, where the parties seek a swift settlement, experience shows that the court can act quickly whether the proceedings have been instituted by unilateral application or by special agreement. For example, in the case concerning Avina and other Mexican nationals, Mexico versus United States of America was initiated by unilateral application. Proceedings were commenced on 9th January 2003. Provisional measures were ordered within a month on 5th February 2003. And the final judgment was delivered on 31st March 2004, or just over 14 months from the date of proceedings by the applicant. The consideration of this case indicates that the court's ability to move expeditiously if there are cooperative parties and no counterclaims. In the case concerning the arrest warrant of 11th April 2000, Democratic Republic of the Congo versus Belgium, also began by unilateral application. Proceedings were commenced on 17th October 2000. Provisional measures were ordered within two months on 8th December 2000, and the final judgment was delivered within 16 months on 14th February 2002. In both these cases, the court was also required to deal with preliminary objections relating to jurisdiction and admissibility. In passing, I should simply mention to you that the increased use of the court by states since a number of years ago, and in order to meet this growing demand and fulfill its judicial responsibilities with more efficiency, the court had also taken certain positive steps to improve its working methods, a subject I will return later. Last but not least, the court operates within the institutional framework of the United Nations. Under Article 94 of the Charter, the Security Council may take appropriate measures to ensure compliance with the decisions of the court. This means that the court's general jurisdiction is matched with possibilities of enforcement not available to other international courts and tribunals with the jurisdiction to settle disputes between states. Yet, 
although this enforcement mechanism exists, I am pleased to note that it is very rare in the practice of the court that its decisions are not complied with. Judgments of the court have in the past mostly been scrupulously respected. Indeed, as noted in a recent survey of compliance with the court's judgments, published in the American Journal of International Law, the level of compliance has remained at the same high level in recent years, while the course general list has steadily grown. Given the strength of its place within the United Nations and the provisions of both the Charter and the Statute of the Court, it would appear that International Court of Justice has the legal, structural, and functional resources it needs to achieve the peaceful settlement of international disputes. However, the assertion the court has the primary responsibility for judicial settlement of international disputes calls for a significant qualification, namely, the court does not automatically have the power to settle any dispute. As a part of the larger organizational framework within which roles and functions are clearly assigned and the bounds of each organ's powers defined, the court is subject to certain limitations. The most important limitation on the court's powers emanates from its jurisdiction ratione personae. In its contentious capacity, the court is solely open to states and even then, only when all parties to the dispute fall within its jurisdiction in one of the ways provided in its statute. The court has often referred in the, uh, to the fact that its jurisdiction to hear and decide a case on the merits depends on the will of states involved. In other words, the court's jurisdiction is based on the consent of the parties. This principle, reflected in Article 36 of the statute, is a corollary of the sovereign equality of states as provided in Article 2, Paragraph 1 of the Charter. No doubt, it restricts the ability of the court to settle international disputes. Furthermore, Despite their emerging effectivity as subjects of international law and potential parties to disputes, international organizations have no access to the court's contentious procedure. The organs of the United Nations and certain specialized agencies can, however, present requests for advisory opinions to the court under the conditions specified in Article 96 of the Charter. So notwithstanding these constraints, the court has made, and in my view, continues to make an invaluable and unprecedented contribution to the peaceful settlement of international disputes. By its 65th anniversary this year, that is 2011, the International Court of Justice is the longest-lived international tribunal. Since its inaugural sitting on 18th April 1946, 
it has contributed to the resolution of interstate disputes involving countries from across the globe. To date, the court has rendered over 100 judgments. There is no question of international law that cannot, in principle, be submitted to the court. And the cases it has dealt with cover the widest range of legal issues. The court has also assisted international organizations by giving advisory opinions on very substantial and diverse matters involving legal issues. There is a growing complexity and a multiplicity of issues that the court may be required to decide any one time. Cases are rarely limited today to a single matter of interpretation of a treaty. While the court pays equal attention and attributes equal importance to all the cases, few illustrate more strikingly the importance of a court than matters involving peace and security. In particular, there are a number of recent rulings that demonstrate the contribution the court has made to the peaceful settlement of interstate disputes. With respect to the frontier dispute between Burkina Faso and Mali, the court secured a ceasefire between the parties before definitively fixing the disputed boundary line in 1986. Similarly, in 1994, it resolved a 20-year conflict between Libya and Chad over the Aouzou Strip. Shortly after the judgment, Libyan authorities and armed forces evacuated the disputed area under the supervision of observers appointed by the Security Council. In 2001, the court ruled on the respective claims of Bahrain and Qatar to sovereignty over various islands and to the surrounding maritime waters. There too, the judgment of court ended a long-standing dispute which had threatened to escalate into violence on one or more occasions. The reactions of both parties bore testimony to the court's efficacy in resolving disputes between states. Following the judgment, Balen expressed his gratitude to the court for their contribution to world peace and for its role in reconciliation between sister nations. While Qatar recognized that following the rendering of the court's judgment, the two sister states can enter upon a new phase of good relations and can enjoy peace and prosperity, untroubled by the problems that had been for so long a source of discord between them. Again, in 2002, the court delivered its judgment on the question of land and maritime boundaries between Cameroon and Nigeria. <laughs> this dis dispute had been characterized by serious incidents involving use of armed force in several locations, notably in the Bakasi Peninsula. Weeks before the court handed down its judgment, the United Nations Secretary General 
invited the presidents of both Cameroon and Nigeria to meet with him in Paris on 5th September 2002. The two presidents agreed to respect and execute the anticipated judgment and to establish an implementation mechanism for the court's decision. The judgment thus paved the way for the establishment of Cameroon Nigeria Mixed Commission, the UN-sponsored joint initiative at implementing the court's ruling. Some years ago, Nigeria had withdrawn from Bekasi Peninsula, and both parties had also implemented other parts of the court's ruling on boundary issues. There are, of course, many examples of the court's contribution to the peaceful settlement of disputes between states, which time does not permit me to discuss. Apart from its role in resolving dispute, uh, specific disputes, it is also true that jurisprudence of a court stands as a constant to which states can refer in case of disagreement and thus plays a preventive role in the emergence of future disputes. If decisions of the court are binding on the parties to the case in this decided, the reasoning in these decisions often serves to clarify some aspects of the law or serves the progressive development of international law in ways that can be useful to the entire international community. For example, in the oil platform, Iran versus United States of America case of 2003, the court examined the different arguments of the parties relating to the question of use of force. During the course of this examination, the court laid down some important clarifications concerning the legal limits on the right of states to act in self-defense, such as existence of an armed attack, necessity and proportionality, just as the court did in the military and paramilitary activities in and against the Nicaragua case. These clarifications now serve as an important landmark and as a useful guide to all states. In a similar fashion, the court also contributes to international peace and security through its advisory opinion mechanism. One example can be found in its advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons. There, the court considered whether customary international law provided a basis for the prohibition of the threat or use of nuclear weapons. In its opinion, the court noted that although it could not find the required opinion juris on the matter, it did, however, stress the applicability of the principles and the rules of humanitarian law to a situation involving the possible threat or use of nuclear weapons. At the end of its reasoning, the court recognized that in view of the state of international law, and of the elements of fact at its disposal, it could not conclude definitively whether the threat or use of nuclear weapons would be lawful in an extreme circumstance of self-defense. 
in which the very survival of a state would be at stake. However, the court emphasized that the most appropriate means of ending the divergent views on the legal status of nuclear weapons is complete nuclear disarmament. And the court went on to hold that states have an obligation to pursue in good faith negotiations leading to nuclear disarmament in all its aspects and strict effective international control. The opinion was well received by the General Assembly. Another example lies in the advisory opinion on the legal consequences of the construction of a wall in the occupied Palestinian territory. In that opinion, the court, having reached the conclusion that construction of the wall by Israel in the occupied Palestinian territory was contrary to international law, clarified the obligations, responsibilities that rested on Israel as well as on other member states of the United Nations and the United Nations organs themselves as a consequence of that finding. However, in stating legal consequences for member states and the UN organization, the court stressed the fact that this construction of the wall must be placed in a more general historical context of the region from the 1947 onwards. The court has also emphasized that illegal actions and unilateral decisions have been taken by all sides, whereas in the court's view, this tragic situation can be brought to an end only through implementation in good faith of all relevant Security Council resolutions, including Resolution 1515-2003, on the roadmap. The court also considers that it has the duty to draw the attention of the General Assembly to which the advisory opinion is addressed to the need for efforts to initiate negotiations to be encouraged with a view to achieving as soon as possible on the basis of international law a negotiated solution to the outstanding problems and the establishment of a Palestinian state existing side by side with Israel and its other neighbors, with peace and security for all in the region. The court's opinion, when delivered, was widely acclaimed. If time permits, I could present to you more example of, of the court's contribution to peaceful settlement of international disputes, including numerous cases not related to use of force. I would like to emphasize that the contribution of the court in this regard is not limited to cases directly concerning peace and security. The court has played an important role in the prevention of armed conflicts by facilitating the process of preventive diplomacy through its judgments and advisory opinions and by participating in the progressive development of international law. Before I conclude, I would like to shed some light on the future of the International Court of Justice. The Court has been particularly busy 
over past years, faced with an ever-growing caseload on its general list, the court has made tremendous efforts to increase its judicial efficiency while maintaining its high quality of work. The court has modernized the organization of its registry, reviewed, adapted its internal working methods, promulgated practice directions for the litigant parties, and even modified its rules where necessary. It is not without satisfaction that I can tell you that these efforts are bearing fruits. The level of activity displayed by the court over the past years is simply put, unprecedented in its history. To give you a rough idea, between 2003 and 2005 alone, the court had rendered a final judgment in no less than 13 cases, of which the judgment in all of the eight cases concerning the legality of use of force having been rendered simultaneously. And the court delivered also one advisory opinion on the request of the General Assembly of the United Nations. As a result, the number of cases in backlog on the court's docket has been substantially reduced. In my view, the first concern of the court will be to maintain this high level of judicial efficiency while maintaining its high quality of work in all its aspects and so to keep on performing the duties that have been entrusted to it by the international community within the framework of the United Nations. The future role of the court in this sense will not be that different from the role it is playing now it is that of the main judicial organ of the United Nations. The question is thus, how can the court's role within the UN be strengthened? The Secretary General has been pretty clear on this point in his report in Larger Freedoms. States who have not done so needed to consider accepting the compulsory jurisdiction of the court and the recourse to the advisory jurisdiction of the court by duly authorized UN organs and specialized agencies should be increased. While important thoughts are given to the reform and modernization of the United Nations and negotiations to this effect are going on, there are two more questions which I would like to mention in relation to the future of the court. The first is related to the role being played by each organ of the United Nations, and more specifically, each principal organ thereof. The course functions within the United Nations are that of a judicial organ and of a legal advisor through its advisory procedure. It is not a legislative organ, nor a political one, as I have noted earlier. The role of the court and that of the Security Council are complementary, and each of these organs is accomplishing its tasks independently, paying full respect to the prerogatives of the other. There has been an increasing tendency on the part of some states in recent years to bring to the court disputes 
that was simultaneously under discussion in the Security Council. This situation has happened on a number of occasions. For instance, in the case concerning land maritime boundary between Cameroon and Nigeria, the case concerning armed activities on the territory of the Congo, Republic of the Congo versus Uganda. In both of these cases, the parties have been careful to bring to the court the legal aspect of their disputes. This has allowed the court to limit itself to its judicial functions. The legal questions and political ones are, however, always deeply entangled. Clearly, the court is capable of deciding cases related to Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter. The court has done so in a number of cases such as Nicaragua case, oil platform case, armed activities on the territory of the Congo case. But the thorny question is whether the court has competence to deal with Security Council's powers under Chapter 7 of the Charter. For example, in the Rockabit cases, Libya versus the United States of America and Libya versus United Kingdom, the court was faced with the very critical issue of competence to review the Security Council's resolutions on Libya under Chapter 7 of the Charter. Fortunately, Libya withdrew the cases before oral proceedings on merits. Again, in the case of the armed activities on the territory of the Congo, the court was requested by the Congo to adjudge and declare that Uganda had committed aggression in violation of the Charter of the United Nations. It has to be noted that the determination of existence of aggression falls under the competence of the Security Council under Chapter 7. The Security Council, in its resolutions on the Uganda-Congo armed conflict, had never determined that there was existence of aggression on the part of Uganda. The court discreetly made no pronouncement on the Congo's claim and only decided that Uganda committed the use of force against the Congo in violation of Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter. If such a tendency were to develop, states' parties might be disappointed at the court's unwillingness to tackle with thorny issues which, in, my, in their view, are of a legal nature. Thus, the court might be put one day in a very delicate situation. Therefore, it is very important that reform of the United Nations be led with keeping in mind the respective and distinctive roles of its various principal organs. Another topic which I would like to mention in terms of the future role of the court is that of the proliferation of the specialized international courts and the tribunals. While such a multiplication should be welcomed in that it proves an increasing commitment of states to the rule of law, it is, however, not without risks. A major risk is the fragmentation of international law that might flow from having various bodies 
interpreting and applying the same legal principles in different, if not opposite, ways, as well as the risk of overlapping jurisdiction. Just some years ago, prediction of such risks had proven at least partially true as the first instances of such contradictions have occurred. A case in point is that, with regard to the test for determining whether the conduct of a person or an entity can be equated to that of a state under international law, the International Court of Justice in the Nicaragua case employed a strict test of effective control whereas the appeal chamber of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia in its Tadish case decided that overall control instead of uh, effective control is sufficient enough as proof. In return, the, the International Court of Justice in its genocide case, Bosnia-Herzegovina versus Serbia, devoted a long paragraph to explain the rationale for the test of effective control. I will not try to bring an answer to this complicated problem of fragmentation, but I will just suggest that international court of justice might have to a role to play in resolving it, whether through a mechanism of extended advisory opinion or through some more judicial, exceptional, and limited appeal procedure. Anyhow, this question needs to be resolved as soon as possible before the situation becomes uncontrollable, resulting in disastrous consequences of confusion for the rule of law in the international community. Now, this brings me to an end of what I would like to speak today. Thank you.